Well, as we start this chapter, and we're going to read every verse of this chapter, just so you know, 1 Samuel 25. As we start this, we um, have to deal with characters exiting and entering the stage of this play, God's divine play. And we start with Samuel exiting stage left, you could say, in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 25, a monumental point in Israel's history. It says, Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Well, the man that the nation had rejected as they had rejected God. If you remember that scene in Samuel's life, whenever God told him, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. When the nation said, we don't want judges, we want a king like everybody else. Well, the nation that rejected God and rejected Samuel, they now mourned Samuel. They mourned at his death. There were those who probably last spoke to Samuel some harsh words as they demanded a king. And now we're attending his funeral. He was, of course, the spiritual mentor of David in some ways. He was the spiritual mentor of many people. We just saw a couple of weeks ago how he had this school of prophets that even when Saul and his men went down there to see Samuel, they began prophesying because God had so richly blessed Samuel's ministry. One commentator called Samuel Israel's conscience, the conscience of the nation, had died. Samuel was a man who anointed both Saul and David, and God used him to anoint that king and the future king. He saw uh, the king, Saul, go against David. He saw David on the run. For the last part of his life, Samuel was witnessing the king that God had chosen be on the run from Israel's actual king, and he never got to see David take the throne. Isn't that just interesting how God does that in our lives, how he puts us in people's lives and we think that we're a really instrumental part and sometimes we don't even get to see the monumentous occasion. Samuel never got to see David as king. So he exits stage left and now we have a new cast of characters entering stage right, you could say. And we start with this man named Nabal. Let's start in verse 2, 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 2. It says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, now the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in all his dealings, and he was a Calebite, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 men, 10 young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him by name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Well, isn't it interesting how the author here gives us the name of Nabal? The name comes up in verse 3 as a parenthetical type statement. What the author wants us to know in verse 2 is that he was a rich man. 
That's the first thing you need to know about Nabal, is he had a lot of money, he had a lot of resources, he had a lot of, you could say, strength and wealth. And then we find out his name is Nabal, which means fool. It's a, a, a word that means fool. So if you think, what's in a name? Well, there's a lot in this name. Have you wondered how some people make it through life with the name Joy? That's got to be a tough name to have, right? What's in that name? Well, depending on the day, there might be Joy, there might not be. In fact, uh, back in the day, there were some people named Prudence, things like that. And that's a tough name to live up to, isn't it? To be named Prudence. Well, I'm sure there were some careless Prudences out there. But Nabal was a fit name. Fool was a good name for this man because he was indeed a fool. In fact, not even his servants respected him. We'll find out a little later on in the story. He becomes, this man Nabal, becomes the first opposer of David since Saul. Saul was really the first enemy that David had because he was threatened by David. And now we have Nabal who comes in as an antagonist for really the first time since Saul began his antagonism. And David had responded so, so well. What we've been seeing in the story over and over again is David doing basically a good job. Now, we saw that he, of course, lied recently in one of his expeditions. But as his relationship with Saul has carried on, he's basically done a good job responding to the trials and the temptations that have been brought about. What we're going to see today, though, is that David won't do as well with this test. Nabal is placed in his life, and I do mean placed in his life by God. This foolish man is put in his life as a test. And David does not pass this test. In Chuck Swindoll's commentary, he says, Like the rest of us, David learned the hard way that you can't live today on yesterday's obedience. It just goes to show that past victories don't guarantee future successes. Each opportunity for anger carries the same destructive potential. And we'll see that as David gets angry. But let's keep reading. Let's pick it up in verse 9 and read down through verse 13. It says, when David's young men came, that is to Nabal, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird his sword. So each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. <laughs> okay. Well, things have just escalated here, haven't they? Things have gotten a little bit intense. Here you have a band of men on the run, hundreds of men, 600 men we're talking about here who are with David, as David has accumulated followers, people who recognize that he is going to be the next king of Israel, those who respected him more than they respected Saul. And as they were on the run, they were in this area where Nabal lived, and they had protected Nabal's property. They had protected his servants that were there, they had protected his uh, livestock, his sheep, they were keeping these things safe from enemies who may have attacked, from wild beasts who may have threatened the other animals. And so David appeals to Nabal on a day of feasting. It's a, 
festive day we read earlier, and usually they would shear their sheep on the festive day. And so they come in on a festive day of feasting and shearing, basically asking for some leftovers for sustenance. And they are not just asking for a basic handout, they're saying, here's what we've done. Would you throw some crumbs our way? And Nabal rejects the opportunity. In that culture, it was very customary to care for those who cared for you. It was standard practice for someone to say, hey, I've been doing this in your life, you didn't know about it, and I'm not asking for a lot, but could you do X, Y, Z for me? And here he's just asking for some food, some leftovers from the feast. Well, Nabal doesn't even entertain the opportunity. And I'm going to share with you several Proverbs this morning. One of them is Proverbs 18.7, which speaks about Nabal. And it says, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. When Nabal replies with that quip, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? I don't know where he came from, which he just said he's the son of Jesse, so he knows a little about about where he came from. Here we have the fool's lips serving as a snare. Here we have Nabal really poisoning his own soul. He gives these digs toward David, calls him a runaway slave, a disobedient man, and You can't help but think of the contrast that we see between Nabal and others in David's life to this point who have actually helped him. Last week, Dean shared with us from 1 Samuel the story with Ahimelech. Remember when David needed something to eat and Ahimelech gave him the bread of the presence? Ahimelech was kind to David, was a friend to David. He served with love and wisdom, even something as precious as that ceremonial bread. And here Nabal, with his overflow of all his riches says, no, I'm not going to help David. What a punk. What a total, total punk. (laughs) Well, his name, Nabal, is actually the Hebrew word for fool. I said earlier it means fool, and that's a word for fool in the Hebrew. And one of the places where that word is used is Isaiah 32. I love this verse as we think of Nabal. It says, for a Nabal, a fool, speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord. And look at this, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. He's really living up to his name, isn't he? This fool Nabal. And another proverb, this is Proverbs 18, verse 23. It says, the poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. Here you have David just needing some crumbs. He's hungry. He's on the run. He gives supplications. Would you please give me something? And the rich man does indeed answer roughly. It's so amazing to see how Scripture comments on Scripture, isn't it? Well, what did David do? Look again down with me here at verse 13. When his servants come back, David is ready to kill. As this rich man answers roughly, as this Uh, fool withholds food from the hungry, David says, okay, well, we'll kill you. That's David's go-to. David answered a fool according to his folly here. And there are two ways to do that. In Proverbs 26, it talks about answering a fool according to his folly. In one way, it's really good. In another way, it's really bad. In one way, you're holding up a mirror and you're showing the fool his own folly. You're perhaps responding with somewhat of a sarcastic tone and showing that person how silly he or she looks. There's another way to answer a fool according to his folly that's very bad. That's when you join him in his folly, when you are like him. And here, David joins a foolish man in his folly 
Because the answer to this isn't, let's equip 400 guys with swords and just go kill everybody. That's not the answer. That's never been the answer. It's not going to be the answer in David's case. And he's unprepared for this test. He's caught off guard by this denial of his request for some leftovers from Nabal's feast. I want to pull up a map here so we can remind ourselves what David's been through. On the red there, you have David's path that he's taken through his life here as he's on the run from Saul. And I know it looks like a crazy trick play in football or something that someone drew up there, but that was kind of David's life. He was just on the run. And he's been through all these things. He's gone through all these cities and faced so many trials as Saul has pursued him with his men. And I have to stress, he's done so well. Things have gone, generally speaking, so well. And then he comes to Carmel, and that spot there on the map where there's kind of like an oval on its side, Carmel is right there next to that. He comes to this little town, he comes to this place, and he just doesn't expect to have to deal with an idiot. He doesn't expect to have to deal with an ungrateful moron. But that's exactly what he runs into. And this is a test that he just didn't see coming. So with that context, I thought this commentary from A.W. Pink was really, really helpful. He says, lay this well to heart, dear reader. A small temptation is likely to prevail after a greater has been resisted. Why so? Because we are less conscious of our need of God's delivering grace. Peter was bold before the soldiers in the garden, but became fearful in the presence of a maid. Well, David arrives at this no-name place to deal with a no-name person with a heart totally unprepared to face this small test. He was not ready to face a stubborn fool, yet that is exactly what God had for him. And I'm wondering if you're ready to deal with the fools in your life, Christians. Who knows who you're going to go home to today? Who knows what neighbor might knock on your door? Who knows who you work with tomorrow? Are you ready to deal with the fools in a Christian way? I'm sure you're ready to deal with the fools. (laughs) Are you ready to deal with the fools the way that Jesus has dealt with you? Are you ready to be tested by God? Well, David clearly wasn't. He was ready to kill. So now, let's enter again from stage right, Abigail. Great, great timing by one of the servants here. Verse 14, let's read 14 to 18. It says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. (laughs) See what I mean about his servants not respecting him? They recognized that he was not worthy of respect. And I don't think this is so much name-calling as it is just stating a fact. Nabal was, in fact, in reality, truly a worthless man. But let's remind ourselves of Abigail in contrast to Nabal. Back up in verse 3, look at what it said about Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. So as Nabal, her husband, was defined by his harshness, his evil in all of his dealings, his wife Abigail was defined by intelligence and by beauty. She and Nabal really made quite the couple, didn't they? 
They are a couple that shouldn't have been together, but there they were. And one of the servants of Nabal came to her, and why did he come to her? Because he recognized her wisdom against the backdrop of Nabal's folly. He came to her because he knew, as he says at the end, he's a worthless man and no one can even speak to him. He understood Nabal's worthlessness. And now Abigail is put in a situation that she didn't ask for. How tough would this be for Abigail? A servant comes running saying, you got to do something. We've got the good guy and all of his good guys with them. We're about to kill all of us because our leader's the bad guy. And what can Abigail do? Extremely difficult situation for a woman to be in. She had to figure out how to honor God, how to honor her husband, how to honor David, all three at the same time, simultaneously, while trying to figure out how to keep bloodshed from happening on her own property. And she acts very, very quickly. She gets to moving. And that's because she was the right person to go to. What you have here is a very shrewd servant sent by God who observed the situation, who knew exactly who to go to. He went to a wise intercessor. And what we're about to read, starting in verse 18, is we're going to see a masterclass in intervention, especially a woman who had so many things going against her. It's just brilliant what she does. Uh, Recently, uh, last week, week before last, I was on an airplane headed out to South Carolina, and I was going through the entertainment options, and I picked something that uh, probably not very many people would watch, but I watched the full, however many hours, master class on negotiation. I thought that was fun. They, they have this guy who is used to dealing with hostage situations walk you through how to negotiate. So I spent a few hours of my life doing that. Someone should try to negotiate with me and see if I learned anything. But, but the master class series is interesting. I'm sure many of you have heard of it where you, they bring in an expert and he walks you through or she walks you through a course of what that person's an expert in. And by the end of it, you pick up some tools that you can apply to your own life. Well, what we get here with Abigail is a really condensed version of a masterclass on intervention, especially for someone who couldn't just push a button and have all things go her way. So let's look here as both Abigail and David take matters into their own hands, one of them being wise and the other, of course, being foolish. It says in verse 18 that Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Verse 20, it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. So again, revisiting the situation from David's perspective, thinking about what David was set to do, you you saw there in verses 21 and 22 where he was muttering, probably 
to his servants, but also to himself often, what he was planning to do to Nabal and to his servants, David wanted to commit a massacre. This is a sinful, angry response. He wanted to go just blow up Nabal's life. That was his plan. You could say that he made a rash vow here in his own heart, a dishonorable rash vow. And he was being led by the heart of man rather than the heart of God. James chapter 1, verse 20 gives us a great principle that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. David here was led by the anger of man. More to the heart of what's going on here, Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, Jesus taught us to love your enemies, to do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. That clearly was not in David's view here. He went on to say, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now that's a higher principle, isn't it? That's wisdom. That's true love. And David did not have that going on. So what's Abigail's role here? Well, in God's grace, here she is to put... uh, You could say a stick in the spokes of David's plan to stop a fool from carrying through with his evil that he had planned in his heart. Think of how often God probably saves us from our own folly and we don't even realize it. (laughs) That's exactly what's going on with David right here. How often does God intervene and we just have no idea? As I was thinking through this story, I was thinking about uh, when I was a kid, I would often go find my dad working on something in the garage or in a shop or something. And I would be there, apparently, at just the right time, because he would be working on something, and he would need something across the room, or need someone to lift something, and it's like, he's stuck, and he says, hey, hey, while you're here, can you grab this or do that? And I asked him a few times, how would you have done that if I didn't show up? (laughs) And the answer is, something would have broke, probably, right? He would have uh, made some sort of attempt to do something that he couldn't do, because he only has two arms. And I showed up as arms three and four, not sure how helpful I was, but at least was able to get him to the next spot in his journey of whatever he was working on. Well, how often do you think you are right on the precipice of doing something really foolish, and God sends along an Abigail? God sends along someone or something that just hits you right when you need to be hit, that stops you right when you need to be stopped. Well, David really is a recipient of God's grace here, isn't he? that Abigail was sent on a divine mission to do this. And she displays all the great qualities of a peacemaker. It doesn't say here specifically that she was in prayer about this. It says she was in a rush. But I guarantee you, she was riding that donkey. She was praying. She's a woman of faith. She's a woman of wisdom. And she, of course, knew that she needed God's strength. So what we have here is a very prayerful, a measured response to David. She's being assertive with this obligation that she felt to intervene in the situation. There are times when God puts us in these situations where we may have to do this, where His sovereignty and our responsibility are not far apart at all, but they're intertwined. It could have been really easy for Abigail to say, nah, if God doesn't want it to happen, He'll take care of it. But no, she loaded up her donkey and she went with food, she went with gifts, and she went to go speak to David. She leaned in to the paradox that God is totally sovereign over this, yet she is also involved. And here she is, inserting herself into the situation. 
We see part of her strategy in verse 19. Did you find this interesting? At the end of verse 19, it says that part of her strategy was not telling the fool. Part of her strategy was not telling Nabal. Now, before you're perhaps quick to condemn for that, isn't it true that not all truth should be spread all the time? Isn't it true that not all truth should be public truth all the time? In fact, again, in the book of Proverbs, it says in Proverbs 23, verse 9, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. I think even though that proverb wasn't written yet, I think she knew that. She wasn't going to waste her breath on that fool who would, would not listen to her. So it is not sinful to strategically handle a fool, okay? You may have fools in your life, and strategy may be necessary. Don't sin, but employ strategy. All right, let's keep reading. Starting in verse 25, look at these appeals that Abigail makes to David. It says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you in all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel... This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Well, that's a lot of lords, isn't it? There's a lot of lords going on. And what I find so amazing, one of the several things I find so amazing about Abigail here, is through all of this, she stayed in humble submission to all of her lords. Isn't that amazing? Again, thinking of the difficulty she was in as a woman at that time, put on the spot with this information, needing to intervene. She stayed in submission to her husband and to David and to God. It's an amazing, amazing act of wisdom and love. I love what commentator Joyce Baldwin said about this. She says, although she speaks as a handmaid to her Lord, Abigail is master of the situation. <laughs> and boy, is that true. Abigail really had things under control, it seems, though I'm sure her heart was pounding. Proverbs 14, verse 1, a very important verse for you women. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. What's Abigail doing right now? She's seeking to protect and build her house. She's doing what she can in the role that she has to serve God well, to honor her husband, to protect what God has given. She shows feminine assertiveness, that she would go out of her way to do this, remaining humble through that assertiveness. It's not a sin, ladies, for you to be assertive, especially 
when you are absolutely the only one who could do such a thing. And there are times when you'll be the only one to speak up. What a great example we get here of true, humble, feminine assertiveness. She confessed wrong as we read through that passage and you run your eyes back over those verses. Did you notice that she confessed wrong? She asked for forgiveness. She also seeks restitution. See, she sees if there's a, a way that things can be made right. She brings food. She brings gifts. She seeks to make things right through reconciliation. And through all of that, maybe you missed it, she called him out. She called David out on his foolishness. It'll probably take you rereading this on your own. But she masterfully took the sword out of David's hands. You read it and you think, how could David ever stop his plan after that? It's because she's wise. She's as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. And she spoke the right words at the right time to disarm David and his men. I think this was probably a a very formative moment for David as a leader. You could even say that David needed this intervention more than Nabal did. Very, very important for David to learn a lesson here and to learn it through Abigail. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary, which when I read his chapter on 1 Samuel 25, I almost just threw my sermon away and just read his chapter for you this morning. It is so good. But I'll share with you these two sentences. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis said, The rejected king, Saul, may practice sheer butchery, but that is not the way for the chosen king, David. Yet the chosen one wanted his gore and would have obtained it had Yahweh not sent him a savior in skirts. Love that. Well, David here does embrace this godly reproof. Let's look at verse 32, verses 32 to 35. Here's how David responds. It says, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed, and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Amazing. Amazing. I love what David says in verse 32. He recognizes that the Lord God of Israel sent her. He sees God's hand in this. God's invisible hand can sometimes be quite visible to those who have eyes of faith, right? That we have the eyes of our heart enlightened. We can see God at work, and he certainly did. And he came to his senses. God sent that first that careful servant to Abigail, one of Nabal's young men who was able to see, he was able to observe the right conversations and put two and two together, and he knew to go to Abigail. God did that. And then God sent the wise woman, Abigail, to David. Such gracious providence of God. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says, Abigail was a wise reprover of David's passion, and he gave an obedient ear to the reproof according to his own principle, Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. That's what David wrote in Psalm 141. Henry says, Never was such an admonition either better given or better taken. What a sweet moment. And we would do well to take heed too as we think about those times when we are on the precipice of folly. 
when we're on the edge of acting out of anger, acting out of spite, or acting out of bitterness, or just acting out of pride. We would do really well to listen to our brothers and sisters in the faith who, by God's grace and His Spirit's power, work up the gumption and the boldness to come to us and say, stop. And we would do well to also consider how God might use us to say stop to someone else, not just to receive the word, but to give the word. When one of God's people feels bold enough to have to step into your situation and you didn't ask that person, but that person feels the need to do it, and that person is using truth and love as the basis for what he or she is saying, take heed. Take heed. Receive the admonition. Receive the reproof. Embrace whatever God has given that person to put into your life, that you would apply it in such a way to change course, to better honor God. It's a very, very good word for us today. But this isn't the end of that story. There are some loose ends needing tied up, and there are a couple of plot twists that still remain. I kind of wish the sermon could end there, actually. I wish I could just say, and all God's people said, and let's go eat lunch. You know, I just kind of wish we could do that. But instead, God gives us a curveball. All right, so let's, uh, let's check this out. We'll start with verses 36 to uh, 39 and see what happens to Nabal. Now, this part, this part is good, but uh, it gets harder from here. 36, then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. So we'll stop right there. Here we see the fate of the fool. Here we see the fate of the one who is evil, who loves his wickedness, who rejects God, who loves the lie rather than the truth. This is the fate of the fool. Now, it may not be as swift in every case. In fact, it for sure isn't as swift in every case. But the end of the road for the one who is taking the path of foolishness, the end of that road is certainly death. The end of that road is the judgment of God. And as a fool, Nabal was clearly tone deaf to his sin. What was he doing when Abigail came back from this incredibly dramatic moment where she stopped all of his servants from being slaughtered when she saved Nabal's life? What was he doing? Getting drunk. He was partying it up. He was having a great time. He was bringing out everything they had. It was a party because he had a hard heart. He was completely and utterly tone deaf to the seriousness of his own wickedness. And how dangerous is that, my friends? To be so sinful, to be so prideful, to be so wicked, and to not care, to not know it, to not care to know it. Again, a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 21. It says, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. He had his opportunity to feed many. He had his opportunity to serve God. But he died 
for lack of understanding. Proverbs 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. He had a lot of riches, didn't he? He had everything he wanted, but he didn't have righteousness. And those riches will not profit in the day of God's judgment. Nabal was seeking good times now instead of thinking about God's eternal glory, instead of humbly seeking the glory of the Lord. And this was not unique to Nabal. There were many Israelites who lived this way. There were many Israelites throughout the Old Testament who were rebuked for this same type of thinking. In Isaiah 22, we have the description of the God of Israel speaking to his nation, telling them it's time to mourn for your sin. It's time to repent. And starting in verse 12 of Isaiah 22, it says, In that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping. He called you to wailing. He called you to shaving the head and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. It is so, so serious when God's people are called to repent. And it's so serious when someone who is far from God, as Nabal was, is given the opportunity to believe God. He's given the opportunity to serve God, to follow Him, and he rejects. And the immediate justice that Nabal received, if you again look back at verse 37, is he became as a stone, it says at the end of that verse. His heart died within him, and he became as a stone. It's likely this was either a heart attack or a stroke. It was a sudden health event. Physically, he was disabled. And for the next 10 days, he was nothing. About 10 days later, it says, verse 38, the Lord struck Nabal. Look how active God is in this. It's not natural causes. The Lord struck Nabal, and he died. This is immediate judgment from God, and it could happen to anyone. This kind of judgment from God could happen to any fool. Any of us is just a heartbeat away from no longer walking on this earth. And those who continually reject God need to take heed and they need to learn from this example of Nabal that God is very much involved in your life. It's not that you're doing your thing, God's doing his thing, after you die you'll, you'll make it up, you'll make a deal, you'll shake hands, it'll all be good. God is active in your life now. Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What did Nabal do with this conviction? He suppressed the truth and he exchanged it for a lie. And he received immediate judgment from God. His story reminds me of what Jesus told in a parable. This is Luke chapter 12. So, so important. I I love this parable. Luke 12, starting in verse 16 It says that Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, Drink and be merry. We just read about that in Isaiah, didn't we? But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? 
So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, this really gets to the heart of faith, doesn't it? This gets to the heart of what we've done with truth. This gets to the very core of the gospel. You know, what Nabal did to David, you may do to the son of David. When Nabal says to David, or about David, who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? You know, you could very well say, who's this son of David? Who's Jesus? We don't know. We can't know. Who's Jesus? In fact, many times in the gospel, people ask that question. Jesus would speak to the crowds and the crowd would respond, who's the son of man that he has the authority to forgive sins? Who's he? You can have that same exact heart of Nabal toward David's son. And you too are worthy of God's judgment for rejecting God's son. You must take heed. You must pay attention to Jesus Christ. You must embrace the truth of God in Scripture. You must see for yourself the seriousness of your own sin, not suppressing it like Nabal, but embracing the seriousness of that sin. You must feel the weight of your sin, the weight of the judgment that you deserve. And you must see for yourself that the Son of David, Jesus Christ, died on that cross in your place for your sin. That He died for you. He took the punishment you deserve. And He rose again that you would be justified by God's grace. Now this again is another place where I'd like to stop. But I can't. All right, here we go. 39, let's go to the end of verse 39 and read to the end. It says... Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. So, and now Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. Okay, well that's weird. Here we get uh, some marital footnotes. The, the author here has decided it's a good time to catch us up on David's relationships, and now we have to talk about that. Well, um, if we start at the end, let's go down again to verse 44, the verse I ended with. We need to see what, what Michael's been up to. Michael was David's wife going into 1 Samuel 25. As far as we knew, David and Michael were married. They were doing you know, life together as husband and wife and yada, yada, yada. Well, here we find out that at some point, Saul, who is Michael's father, Saul had taken her and given her to another man. Well, that's no good, right? Um, and it makes you wonder, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, um, apparently this was some form of divorce that was recognized by all involved. You could say David was a victim of divorce from without. There was nothing that he did in this, but Saul was still using his own children as pawns on the chessboard and his big scheme of how he wanted to ruin David's life. And that's one thing he did. Well, now if we back up to verse 43, we find out that also somewhere along the way, David had taken Ahinoam of Jezreel as his wife. 
And this is an interesting fact to bring up. We don't know anything about Ahinoam other than from this point forward, she is always found with Abigail. They're mentioned together as David's wives. They are often uh, doing the same activities together and going through life together. They're together. And she's the mother of Amnon, David's son, Amnon. Well, then you could say, all right, David, he got divorced from Michael. He married Ahinoam happily ever after. He proposes to Abigail, and she says yes, and it says, in verse 43, they both became his wives. David is now, in effect, a polygamist. What do you do with that, right? Who wants to preach? Anybody want to sub? Okay. All right, so uh, this is a, uh, just a reality. It's a reality of Scripture. We've talked about this before. Uh, Scripture is real. Scripture is just real. You don't get perfect, polished people in Scripture. You get real situations. This is what they did. This is what happened. So let's process this a bit, because David is not the only one in Scripture who has multiple wives. Uh, Abraham also had multiple wives. Moses had multiple wives. So you got to kind of start getting your mind wrapped around this and think about what to do with these passages and these realities. Well, let's start with a really hard truth, okay? Uh, This will take me uh, no more than five minutes. Let's start with the really hard truth. The Bible does not explicitly condemn polygamy. There's your hard truth. You can go through the law. You're not going to find an explicit condemnation of the act of polygamy. You're not going to see it in the law of Moses. And you'll also see in Scripture that God recognizes polygamous marriages for wife, two, three, and beyond as real marriages. You see that God treats them as real relationships. If you know the rest of David's story, you know that we're eventually going to get to Bathsheba and his sin with Bathsheba. And then he marries Bathsheba. He adds her to the list. And they have Solomon together. And God recognizes that as a real marriage and Solomon as a legitimate child. Okay? And so that's a bunch of hard truth for you just to accept. However, we also can recognize in the midst of those facts that polygamy is against God's original design, isn't it? God made one Eve, just one. That's his original design. And as we go on reading through the Bible and we get to the New Testament, we see in the New Testament that marriage as Christians, marriage should reflect Christ and his church. Jesus doesn't have two churches, does he? Jesus has one church. And so we see God's original design. We see the Christian purpose of marriage. And we, of course, recognize that polygamy is never encouraged in the Bible. It's never given as a prescription. God doesn't say, yeah, go marry as many as you can. You know, go do your thing. Be your own compass. God doesn't say that. It's never encouraged in Scripture. And as David here in this passage takes multiple wives... He didn't do it under the instruction of God. So polygamy should not be pursued. It should not be pursued. You could say it is folly. David, having escaped one folly by Abigail being a snare to his folly, here we see Abigail participating in his folly. John Gill says in his commentary, very succinct statement here, polygamy, though not agreeable to the law of nature nor the law of God, was a custom which prevailed in those times which good men gave into, though not commended for it. They were not commended for it. 
And Deuteronomy 17, 17 does speak of polygamy when it talks about kings, and it says that the king shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. So specifically talking to kings, they were not to multiply wives. And David here goes against the spirit of the law, goes against even the letter of the law as his life goes on and he gets upwards of six or seven wives. Of course, his son Solomon exceeds his father in that by quite a bit. So now with all of that information to process what happens here at the end of this amazing chapter, 1 Samuel 25, let's conclude with some of these thoughts. There's room to see mercy in this. So even though polygamy is foolishness, even though polygamy goes against God's original design, there is still room in that to see God's providence in this. Abigail was now a widow, and then she was cared for because of David. Should he have done it? No. But is God still showing his mercy? Yes. We can see God's providence in that this is the way that the story is just going to go. Even though sin and foolishness go against God at a very fundamental level, God still incorporates these things in His program, doesn't He? He incorporates you in His program, and you've got sin and you've got foolishness, just like I do. So we can see mercy, we can see God's providence, and we can also recognize that God did not tell Him to do this. So the moral of the whole story here, not just the last part, but the moral of the whole story of 1 Samuel 25 is that God is faithful even when we stray, isn't He? Isn't He so full of grace? Isn't He so gracious and kind and faithful to us? And there is grace that God gives that truly is greater than all of our sin. There's a grace that God gives that's greater than all our folly. And we can look at this and own up to it and say, yep, he's in the lineage of Christ. He's in our faith lineage. And he messed up. And that's where you got to land on those things, okay? Any questions will be uh, directed to Tyler, and we'll go from there. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you do use fools in your plan. You use them to test us. You use them to lead into circumstances where you get the most glory. God, you, you use fools by redeeming them too. We thank you that you've redeemed us, all fools in our own way, that by faith you've rescued us and you've offered us the wisdom that is in Christ. You've offered us your word. You've given us the opportunity to know you and to grow and to walk with you all of our days. Lord, we ask that you would keep our feet from walking down the path of foolishness that you would give us wise, loving connections, that we would reflect your goodness to one another, and that as we depend on you day by day, that you would get honor and glory from our lives as we humbly submit all that we have to you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.